a student told me, Professor, I think you're asking the wrong question. And I said, how so, Jeff? And Jeff said, well, I think the real question is, can entrepreneurship be learned, not taught? Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators, brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Welcome to Mostly Awesome. Our guest today is Hanna Milanov, Professor of International Entrepreneurship and Academic Director of the Executive MBA in Innovation and Business Creation at the Technical University of Munich. But before we start, let us walk you through her personal journey. Hanna studied management at the University of Zagreb in Croatia, where she's also from. After finishing her bachelor, she was accepted to one of the most competitive business schools in the US, where she completed her PhD in entrepreneurship and strategy. After her doctorate studies in the US, Hannah got an offer from the IE Business School. So she moved to Madrid and started her academic career there, where she spent another five years as a professor of entrepreneurship. But this wasn't the final destination for her. After studying and working in three different countries, Hannah decided to move once again, this time to Germany, where she, in addition to professorship and research, served on the TUM Board of Management as the Senior Vice President for International Alliances and Alumni. Hannah is a prominent researcher and she is primarily interested in the fields of entrepreneurship and strategy, international business and social networks. Her research papers have been published in some of the most prestigious journals in her area of studies. And besides her academic career, Hannah is also an active board member and mentor at CDTM. Hannah is, in my opinion, really reflected. Um, I love talking to her and um, she also has some great insights into an academic career and um, tells us what she really likes about it. Um, also, Hannah has some great life experience and she is what she calls accidentally academic. Let's briefly have a look at what we discussed with Hannah. In our first blog, we started off by exploring her career in academia and found out why she made the decision to research and teach rather than to be an entrepreneur. She told us about her initial challenge as an academic and how she stays motivated to keep on researching. In our second blog, we dove deeper into her experiences of teaching entrepreneurship and mentoring. We found out what the first question is that she always asks in her class as a professor, why she doesn't give advice to her mentees and what she has learned from mentoring them. You will also find out what Hannah thinks about Bill Gates and his story of starting as a young entrepreneur and about particular challenges that women entrepreneurs are facing. In the third blog, she shares her international experiences from Croatia, Spain, US and Germany and how she adopted and was affected by being exposed to different cultures. Finally, find out Hannah's favorite book, app, podcast, routine and innovator. With that being said, let's hear all that Hannah had to say. So welcome, Hannah, to Mostly Awesome. We're super excited to have you here. And yeah, let's just start right into it. Actually, we're trying out something new. And we asked our last guest, Jakob Asman, a question that he can ask to you. And we gave him just a little bit of an insight and told him that you're in academia and our actually very first guest from academia. So this is super exciting. And since he was also doing a PhD, his question to you is, why are you researching entrepreneurship and not become an entrepreneur? If you talk about it all the time, don't you feel itched sometimes to found yourself? 
Okay, that's a lot of questions to address at the start. So first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really a privilege to be in this high society of your speakers. And uh, as an academic, you don't get always asked to talk to, to interesting innovators. So this is awesome. Second of all, thank you, Jakob, for the question. I think if I had a, a, a dollar, euro or whatever currency for every time I was asked this question, I'd be a very rich woman by now. And the real reason is, so far, I have sort of stumbled into academia and I've stumbled also into entrepreneurship. So the thing is that I come from Yugoslavia turned Croatia, meaning socialist country turning into a sort of transitioning into a, a more capitalist system. And entrepreneurship was not really something that you saw a lot of. And if you saw it, it was also almost frowned upon at the time. So coming into the US and discovering entrepreneurship, both scholarly and practically, was uh, a big aha moment for me. And I fell in love with it. And it turns out, as you start studying, you realize that there's much more that you don't know and much more to study and more people to talk to. And you get to learn about so many different aspects of entrepreneurship and so many different sectors and business models and motivations and flops and failures and learnings and, and all the other things that go along with the roller coaster ride that entrepreneurship is, that I was never ready to you know, jump in and dedicate all of my energy to starting a startup, which is what one should do. And uh, instead, I married an entrepreneur <laughs> and got to <laughs> see it live. So that's the yeah. second best thing to founding, actually, just marrying <laughs> one in. Well, that depends. <laughs> that depends. You know, as uh, many uh, a partner to an entrepreneur will uh, testify, you know, you're in for the ride as well. And it's not always easy to sometimes be a second fiddle to a startup because uh, startups are sometimes like children, all-consuming endeavors. And the good news is now that we have children, now we're trying to start a new startup. So let's see how that goes. <laughs> all right. So one question I have here. So do you never kind of miss the first-hand experience of founding because what you kind of get from the founders is mostly second like then for you it becomes second-hand experience no right is that something that you kind of think hmm maybe it would actually help if i experience this firsthand and not mm -hmm. just hear about it fair enough and a fair point though you know you could ask an analogy doesn't the doctor always dream of becoming sick to really understand what it means to be sick I'm not saying entrepreneurship is a sickness, far from it. But uh, this is to say, I think the kind of experience and the kind of learning you get from talking to many, many different entrepreneurs versus living just one experience are different things. On one hand, I think there's much more richness in seeing different patterns because you're able to contextualize better the experience and, and where it fits in the whole journey. Having said that, I would never say that I can completely empathize with you know, the grand uncertainty, whether to take the funding offer or having employees on a payroll and not knowing whether the second investment is coming or, or things like that are serious responsibilities, which why the, you know, another reason why academia is so nice, it's not the a very responsible position. You're responsible for your own work, but not for, for many employees like you would be as an entrepreneur. Second part of the answer, I guess, is actually, as I said, we're starting a company as we speak. So my husband are in a way are going through the motions at very early stages of trying to actually support the founder community. So the pain that we're seeing, or especially he has seen as a founder and turned personal coach later uh, in life, and working with entrepreneurs is that um, every entrepreneur has oftentimes moments where you feel that you need a neutral party, a Jimmy the Cricket on your shoulder to actually be a sounding mirror and to, to reflect with because your co-founders, your family, your parents, your children, your wife, whoever, all have some sort of a stake on you 
and uh, it's hard to be completely neutral in, in talking through some of the hard issues with them. So in that sense, he's bringing his coaching and entrepreneurial experience and we're trying to create a founder's nook, a place for growth, reflection, community, where entrepreneurs can grow together and become stronger leaders and more satisfied leaders along the way. Stay that sounds tuned. awesome. Nice. Yeah. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Cool. So I think we will jump into your research, actually the topics later on as well. Let's maybe now stick to academia as kind of a career. So you already said that maybe in ac academia you don't really have that responsibility of, I don't know, like your employees, but you rather dependent on your projects. You said actually that in academia it's so nice that you can focus on different fields and don't have to dive into one particular one. Is this actually true? Because I always figured uh, in academia you want to be a specialist and know one particular field especially where i don't know published some papers about it and yeah that was my view so far yeah, is that wrong absolutely. actually no uh, so a, a, a typical mba answer it depends and it <laughs> depends on the stage of life or a stage of career actually so i would say of course as academics we specialize in something and this is uh, absolutely true and it's especially important as you're building up your career and especially pre-tenure stage between the brackets tenure is a moment in which you are in german context a public servant and cannot be fired in the u.s context you're not necessarily uh -huh. a public servant but you also are really really hard to fire and the, the logic of that firing is not because you're unfireable and unreplaceable as a person but the logic of it is much like freedom of teaching that you can actually do research on everything and anything and not stumble into trouble for it so yes before tenure before getting that decision it's probably not advisable to go into many risky projects and dabble around and go after every curiosity that you have though after tenure you certainly have more freedom to you know go after the risky project and maybe sometimes it doesn't turn out well but just recently actually I've had a wonderful experience a very rewarding one of taking on such a risky project with Lina. Lina just graduated last month and she came to me and said Hannah I want to study health in Africa and I said okay I'm missing entrepreneurship in it let's find, <laughs> let's find common ground and she's an incredibly talented hardworking, bright inspirational lady and we ended up studying medtech startups in Uganda and the puzzle to be solved was you have these startups that in you know in the west would have all these resources at hand that they just need to pitch for and get and then scale up turns out in Uganda you don't have the sophisticated resources both in terms of talent in terms of knowledge in terms of industry clusters there's no venture capital And there's not even regulatory framework to actually guide an entrepreneur how to do it. So we embarked on this project. We have some interesting findings. And the wonderful thing was that we extended the work of a very known scholar, Ted Baker, work on bricolage. And we actually got an email from him thanking us for the great work and saying how he learned so much from it. And we were absolutely floored. And via this podcast, if he ever stumbles across it, I want to thank him again. It was a, a real motivational boost, something you don't get often in academia. It's a masochistic profession at times. <laughs> so where do you actually get your like this gratification from? Is it like, is that the usual thing that you get? And after you publish a paper, you get an email saying thank you so much. Oh. Or is that just a special case? No, maybe you get it if you're an editor of a journal, you know, and people are trying to uh, find a soft spot in your heart for their yeah. work. No, it's definitely not common, and especially in the kind of authentic, wonderful way. I mean, there was like a capital wow in the email, which, you know, <laughs> you, you really don't get often. So you have to find the uh, acts of gratification, I, I think, foremost in yourself in terms of 
just like an entrepreneur, you know, be ready for failure and gratify that you can learn something from it. Mm. I think is one thing. Second thing in your team, in research, oftentimes it is a co-authoring effort and, and being there for each other and being excited for each other and seeing how you grow with each other as a scholar is, is wonderful. And then, yes, every now and then you actually get to maybe translate some of these research findings into a classroom exercise or share them with the entrepreneurs. And if you see that this, you know, sparks a light in their eyes or moves a needle or makes their life easier in terms of making some decisions, that's, that, that's the powerful uh, aha moment, I would say. That sounds like a very, very positive attitude towards academia. And it sounds as well like you're in the right in the right position, I think. Yeah. Is there still something that you believe you would have liked to know about academia before you ventured into it? Difficult question. <laughs> and why I say it's difficult is because I'm not sure how much of it was a function of academia as a profession versus my age when I entered it. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled into it very early on. So I was 22 when I started my PhD. And in that sense, I guess, like most of our students, you know, there's so many questions about who you are as an individual and what your values are and how do you want to shape yourself and what kind of challenge, you know, th there's just a lot of questions about yourself that, that you want to answer. And I was sort of answering them while going through academia. I think the, the biggest one is not being afraid to ask questions and make mistakes. And that's mm -hmm. probably a function of how I was educated in Croatia. And what I also see sometimes in our students, which is this function of you, you learn for exams, you learn to reproduce knowledge, find the correct, you know, ABC in a multiple choice, remember the exact definition, five characteristics of a theory or whatever. And that's uh, how I was trained in my undergrad, in my high school, etc. And uh, coming into a PhD, I tried to memorize research papers and I tried to use the same logic of, of having the correct answer. And that's not how academia works. And especially because there's so much to learn. I was oftentimes spending sleepless nights beating myself up for not knowing something uh, and not reaching, being afraid to reach out for advice because The other side effect of being an excellent student, which maybe, you know, CDTM community can also relate to, is that oftentimes people will tell you, oh, you're so smart, everything goes so easy to you, I know you'll figure this out, you're so talented, you're so this, you're so that. And these kinds of phrases have a very unintended probably, but bad side effect that you embrace this role as being the super smart, talented person that needs to figure it out all on your own, as opposed to saying, hey, it's okay that I don't know, I am only in the process of learning, let me reach out and um, accept the fact that I'm not perfect in every sense and, and see what happens. So I think this would be the biggest, biggest advice to myself back then. <laughs> okay, so this sounds like by now you kind of got the hang of it and... You oh, don't no. beat yourself. Oh, no. Up, you know? <laughs> oh, no. And if you talk to my husband, he'd be the first to tell you. <laughs> Then one more question I have actually regards academia. So we talked to Professor Welpe. She gave a talk and she mm -hmm. said they're free. Like there's this triangle and there, and there's some lots of money, your job security and kind of autonomous you are in your job and kind of freedom and she says each job always connects two of these and you can always only pick two and she says that being a professor is basically you have a lot of freedom in your work and you can choose on what you want to work on and you also have a high job security yeah so is this actually something that you would also say yeah this is correct or where do you see that and maybe then follow-up question is this something you considered basically when saying okay I want to be a professor. So the triad was 
Job Security, Freedom. Yeah, and autonomy. money. And money. Okay. So, yes, I would say that, you know, oftentimes you'll, especially during the PhD, when you're receiving a very average stipend. And, you know, in my case, in the US, it was $1,000 per month. And, you know, you're watching all your friends getting consulting jobs, <laughs> you know, making much more than you and riding the wave and buying their first cars and whatever. It, it comes with a pinch of what am I doing here? So there is some room for self-reflection. And uh, sure to this very day, I would say that the professors are typically not the highest paid relative to, you know, top managers or something like that. Having said that, I think it's also important to recognize that there's shades of academics. So it's not always just black and white. There's different ways to say engage in academia. And uh, sure, being a full professor is one way to go about it. But I also know many people who have either, you know, done their PhD, then went out into industry, continued teaching maybe at the university or occasionally engaged with a very interesting research project. So I think there's various ways to be engaged and uh, benefit a bit or, or try to get some of the perks of freedom, for example, and curiosity and learning while having maybe a high paid job, if this is what really drives you. So and then, of course, if you really make a name for yourself, there are ways also to make money in academia in terms of giving talks or consulting or something like that. But no, I have not actively considered that that particular triad when I was thinking yeah. about my journey. Right. And uh, with that, I would say we actually move a bit away from uh, just academia and more jump into your research, which is international entrepreneurship. So with that, we start our second block. So you've been teaching and studying entrepreneurship for 13 years now. Don't and put you... a number on it. <laughs> so you've been teaching entrepreneurship. For a while. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> So you probably were asked this question before, but can entrepreneurship actually be taught? Hmm. The question and the, the question where I think was my biggest fear walking into a classroom the first time I started teaching, because at least two reasons. One, at the time, you still didn't have entrepreneurship in as many classrooms and there was much more skepticism around it. So in a traditional business school, you know, you went to do finance and accounting and economics and numbers stuff that, you know, the real things that one can learn that are accurate and in numbers. And second of all, we didn't have as much research and as many tools to actually teach because in, in academic terms, entrepreneurship is a fairly young field relative to, you know, strategy, economics and, and human Uh, resources or organizational behavior. So walking into a classroom, uh, I actually decided to start the class with that question, just so to, you know, to reduce a bit of the pressure from the cooking pots, yeah, not to have this percolate in students' minds every time they feel frustrated about something. And this was when I got the greatest gift of all, when a student told me, Professor, I think you're asking the wrong question. And I said, how so, Jeff? And Jeff said, Well, I think the real question is, can entrepreneurship be learned, not taught? And I thought that was such a powerful moment in the classroom that I continue having that question and that conversation with students. Because, of course, don't get me wrong, there is a responsibility for us to know which tools work to do research on that, to know how to teach these tools, what makes it more effective, etc. But there is a responsibility on the part of the students to adopt a learner's mindset to be ready to trust the process, to be ready to embrace the uncertainty that comes with it. So there is, uh, it, it's a dual responsibility in the learning process, I would say. And it's a lot of fun navigating the, the front end of it because it is uncomfortable to, to try something new, even in a classroom setting. 
So, but maybe giving like this question a bit of a twist then. So it, it sounds a bit like, yes, you believe it can be learned. Mm -hmm. But in what way do you think you really have to try it out? Or can it be learned by, I don't know, inspiration? What do you think there? Listen, it's a great question. And there's so many nuances to what we're trying to answer mm -hmm. here. I think one should ask, can it be learned? Yes, in terms of you can understand the ins and outs of the entrepreneurial process, the customer discovery process, designing an MVP, understanding business models, understanding growth strategies. So all of these concepts are something that one can, you know, study, look at examples, learn, etc. Now, can you learn to be a successful entrepreneur in applying all of these tools is yet a different question. And a third question is, do you want it? Mm. And I always say, you know, I, I'm not in the business of creating entrepreneurs. I don't think entrepreneurship is a desirable outcome for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think our job as educators is to make it as transparent as possible what entrepreneurship is about, get as close as possible to uh, experience of going through that process and be very reflective with the students on what that meant for them, how did they feel, what they learned, uh, what they could do differently about it, etc. The ultimate decision of whether you want to do it and how you want to do it is, is up to you, like with everything else. So what, what is entrepreneurship all about for you? Value creation at the end of the day. There are various definitions of it in terms of what that value is and how uh, to go about it. One of the famous definitions of Stevenson from Harvard is that, you know, entrepreneurship is a pursuit of opportunity beyond resources currently held. And in that sense, of course, All of this depends on what kind of, a, you know, is it starting a bakery at home, you know, from your basement entrepreneurship? In theory, it is if you're able to create value for that community and if somebody's buying uh, the bread and the rolls. Is entrepreneurship starting, you know, a big biotech company? Yeah, it is. Does it come with different challenges? Yes, it does. <laughs> Both in terms of what the opportunity is, the timeline that you deliver on it and the resources that you need to have to get on it. So as scholars, we have gone through an identity crisis of trying to figure out, you know, all the shapes and sizes of entrepreneurship across the globe, because some people are only saying that, you know, the Silicon Valley scale ups are what entrepreneurship is all about. But then you look at most of the world is not Silicon Valley. There's a lot of necessity entrepreneurship out there, very basic businesses that allow people to, to eat and put food on their table the next day. And is that less important? For sure not. For yeah. sure not, yeah. So, but looking at an entrepreneur as a, as a person maybe, what role would you say does risk play? So does an entrepreneur have to be willing to take risk because I think back in the days, being an entrepreneur actually meant, okay, I have to like risk normal career and maybe even my own money and my own resources and either mm -hmm. it goes well or it doesn't go well. And I feel like by now, many entrepreneurs also just, I don't know, they get VC money, they kind of gamble with the money of other people and sometimes mm -hmm. it works out and they profit along with it and sometimes it doesn't work out, but it isn't that much risk anymore involved. Well, it's a, it's a big question and <clears throat> one that I think media didn't help make it easier. So I think there's a perpetual myth in the media, especially that entrepreneurs are huge risk takers, yeah, gamblers. If you look at original textbooks of entrepreneurship, they were showing, you know, these high cliffs and this lone person trying to climb the cliff, hanging on the rope, you know, life-threatening situations, etc. 
I was shown this picture at my first entrepreneurship lecture in Tum. <laughs> yeah, and it's not true. And I hope that people have had a chance to clarify that. Because first of all, when we were trying to distinguish entrepreneurs from managers in terms of their risk-taking appetite, there isn't a lot of really strong results coming out. Then we started looking at, okay, well, what is risk? And how do we think about it? And it turns out that entrepreneurs are much less likely to invest in the stock market, for example, because it's completely out of their control. So entrepreneurs actually seek control. And in that sense, there's a theory of effectuation and effectuating thinking. And this is what actually distinguishes better managers from entrepreneurs. And that is that entrepreneurs typically work with their own means. And their own means are who they are, what they know and who they know. Yeah? So mobilizing their networks, etc. Rather than going out there and risking and making these huge, huge bets. And you know, one of the examples of big risk takers is Bill Gates, right? The famous high school dropout that risked everything to start Microsoft. Turns out it's not quite the case. So Bill Gates was playing with what was the version of a computer and programming since I think even before high school days, right? The first things that came out, he was on it and they were working day and night on it in high school. His mother was sitting on a board of a big company that became Microsoft's first client. So the network was quite strong. And he didn't drop out of Harvard. He took a year of absence. So he just took a year to pause his studies to see if something's going to work out. Yeah? So when you look at it from that perspective, he was not a huge risk taker. He was doing everything he could to actually control and reduce the risks um, of the venture. And uh, I think this is an important myth to break in mm. our classrooms. That was such an interesting insight. I've never yeah. heard that story. Actually, now that we're already at risk, and I think this is one of the main things that we're talking about when distinguishing male and female entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. I know that you also consider this topic a bit in your research, or at least like in your interests. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is driving away women uh, from being entrepreneurs? Or generally, why are there so much fewer women in entrepreneurship right now? Yeah, right now and before. before. Actually, now more than before. <laughs> so that's the good news. The numbers are moving very slowly in terms of the increasing mm -hmm. trends. Too slow for some people's appetite. And it's true that there's, there's a number of reasons. I think some of them really need to be looked at in a in bigger context than just entrepreneurship. And that is, in general, just employment and, and the roles that women versus men have in the society. And in that sense, uh, these roles are deeply ingrained in, in a lot of things in terms of our expectations of the actual gender and, and what they should do with their time. And uh, in that sense, there's the, the oldest theory of roles uh, of gender is suggesting that women are the nurturing types and as such should take care of their communities, take care of their families once they have them, etc. And, uh, you know, men are the ones who go and hunt and are the breadwinners in that sense. And this perpetual and oldest set of biases in the world then trickles its way into everything, both in terms of which categories of employment are associated with which gender. So, you know, when you think of a nurse, you're more likely to think of a woman. When you think of a surgeon, you're more likely to think of a man. Yeah. And in the same way, again, back to media and back to classrooms and back to scholars as such, we all got a little lazy and started re reinforcing these messages. Because if you get into a classroom, you're more likely to hear about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates than Sarah Blanks, for example, who also became a billionaire. Yeah, but for whatever reason, talking about women's underwear is not as sexy. And in that sense, we as scholars, we as media, we as teachers also have the responsibility to 
shine a light on all sides of entrepreneurship and help potential entrepreneurs, men and women, to see both men and women in these roles, both as entrepreneurs, but then also as other parts of the ecosystem, which is investors, uh, of course. And there's a that's a whole new Pandora box of issues, biases and problems because the investing community is even more male dominated than the entrepreneurship one. Mm. So you are actually also uh, a mentor at CDTM. So mm. if one of your uh, female mentees asks you, okay, but how can I maybe perform better in this now for now man dominated world? Do you have any tips for women who also want to become a founder? Do they have to like do anything else? Or is it just, yeah. just be there and like do it? And that that's no. enough already. No, and I think it depends how short-term versus long-term we're talking about. So on one hand, there is, you know, both war stories and research showing that you have to think what you want and then think how to behave around it. So for example, you hear a lot of anecdotal evidence that female entrepreneurs would invent a male founder and open up an email address with a male founder's name because it was easier to actually get sales calls or meetings if there was a male name in the signature as opposed to a female. Wow. Then there's a lot of research showing how women entrepreneurs should pitch and talk. And the verdict is still a bit out on some aspects of it. But for example, a very powerful piece of research, and there's a TED talk on it, which I share in my classes, from Professor Dana Kanze at London Business School, that I encourage men and women entrepreneurs and investors to take a look at. It's not just a conversation for women. Is that there was a bias among investors, male and female, to ask women so-called preventative questions as opposed to promotion-oriented questions. Meaning the questions of women entrepreneurs would be more about, tell me about these risks and how are you going to handle all these difficult situations? And in asking these kinds of questions, the women would respond to these questions and say all the bad things that could happen. And this sort of frames the investor to start thinking about all the risks and bad things. Men entrepreneurs were asked promotion-oriented questions. How are you going to handle you know, this amazing growth that you put on the hockey stick graph in front of us? How are you going to fend off competitors that are coming into your market that's growing? So all these promotion-oriented questions resulted in promotion-oriented answers and a higher likelihood of getting funding and more funding at that. What is fascinating about the research is that they've done an experiment in showing if you train female entrepreneurs to fend off, much like politicians do, these kinds of questions and turn them, reframe them into promotion-oriented ones where they actually talk about all the exciting possibilities ahead, you can actually neutralize the bias. Mm. So it's a very cool talk, both to educate investors and make them more reflective of the kinds of questions they ask, <clears throat> but also of entrepreneurs in case they actually run into these kinds of questions to be prepared to have the answers that go to their advantage. Sounds awesome. I'm also going to check that out. Yeah, no matter if I uh, encounter any biases or not, but it sounds like a super cool skill to have kind of turn the question around and lead the yeah, conversation. So, but to yeah. your point, it's important because I think what research is showing is gender is not just about sex. In other words, genitals and whether you look female or male, it's also about how you behave. And so there's other research showing that venture capitalists don't like feminine talk, even if it comes from a man. So if you're emphasizing altruism, community, and soft type of uh, nurturing language, etc., this can backfire against you even if you're a man, mm. sexually. So, it's <laughs> so <laughs> bias is not just about sex, it's about doing gender, if you want. Mm. It's a complex okay. topic, but a really interesting one. 
Yeah, one question in this one that I really would like to ask, because sure. you're a mentor and like a super active one. I think alone at CDGM, you have like, what, seven, seven mentees. So that's impressive. First of all, keeps me busy. <laughs> keeps you busy <laughs> because right. you Tell because me. you don't have anything to do anyways, right? No. <laughs> Never. No, so, my kids um, take care of themselves. <laughs> exactly. And your research republishes on its own. It's a magical thing. <laughs> exactly. No, but anyways, you have a lot of experience in mentoring and it would be interesting to us. What, what are the most popular topics that you're being asked about? And is there anything you have learned from your mentees as well? Hmm. So popular topics, I think there's probably as a function of a phase in life. One big one is, you know, how do I know what's my next step mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, especially CDTM students would have typically so many options on the table. Join one of the amazing startups in the community, go out and do start a company of your own, go get a big consulting job, go into the VC direction, go and travel for two years and just find yourself even more. So there's there's a lot of options out there and everybody would want your brains and your spirits and your skill sets. So it's a it's a luxurious problem to have, but it's still a problem. So mm -hmm. I think that's that's one topic we often talk about. The other one is work life balance. So that's another popular topic with some we've been talking about research versus or academia versus industry, if you want, as a topic. And uh, some just like to chat and use me as a sounding board for whatever is on their mind at the moment. <laughs> and that's cool, too. <laughs> nice. What is then usually what you recommend, especially if it's about what do you want to do? Because for you, it has mm. been, as you say it, accidentally academic, right? So what do you recommend there? I think it's such a difficult question. It is, especially because my accidental academia was very much necessity-driven, not mm -hmm. opportunity-driven. So, I mean, the jobs in back then Croatia were not the most exciting opportunity for a, a person like me, at least. And I had some personal situations at home and the family and, you know, coming from post-war Croatia into luxury industry, not industry, luxury um, university environment in the US, it wasn't really a, a big, you know, no-brainer to, to think about. What CDTM students is different for many of them. What do I advise? I really try hard not to advise or <laughs> prescriptive advice if you want, because I really think it's something that you need to discover for yourself. I try to reflect on some of my decisions or share some of my dilemmas with them to try and at least point out what kinds of questions might be helpful for them to, to think about and consider. So I try to s not take ownership of that problem in any way because it's, it's a dangerous field <laughs> to be in, in that sense. But at the same time, we try to outline a little bit, you know, the worst case scenario of trying something and trying to step into those shoes prospective profession, for example, etc., and, and what this could mean for them. And if there's a, much like with entrepreneurs, if there's a controlled risk scenario in which you can try something out and learn in a quick way before fully committing to it. And what else? I think the, the other advice is to immerse yourself in the community of the people whose job or opportunity you're actually considering, because I think you can try to live vicariously through them and understand if this is something where you can relate in that conversation or not. Super helpful advice. And yeah. on the other side, did you as well learn something from them? Anything you like get out of the mentorship as well? Oh, I think, it, you know, it, both like teaching, mentoring also is such a rewarding thing because it keeps your mind fresh. It's so mm -hmm. easy. You know, I have two small kids. I have a husband and a, and a job. And it's so easy to get into that stage of life where you're just living the daily routine and um, mm -hmm forget about the excitement of choice and excitement of opportunities. 
but also you find comfort in having lived through some of these choices because you see that it somehow all works out and it's possible to have a lot of fun in the process. So some problems that look completely daunting to you at the time work themselves out. It's striking how positive you are. <laughs> not always, not always. Catch me on a rainy day, <laughs> I might be different. <laughs> nice. Uh, so then uh, let's move to our very last block, which is about your international experience. You've been studying and working in four different countries, which are Croatia, the US, Spain and Germany. And all these countries have very different cultures and work-life attitudes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, since here we also aim for an international perspective, it would be great to hear a bit of your experience there. Mm -hmm. And actually, our first question would be, could you walk us maybe through this journey a bit and tell us what motivated you to move so often? It's not so often, to be fair. And actually, I've been, I've been having a bit of an itch. I thought, my goodness, I'm in Germany for eight and a half years. But no, so I, I think the first move was a necessity one, as I mentioned, or mm. slash amazing opportunity to do a PhD in the US. So I think normally academics do have some sort of an international component in their career. It's really hard to thrive in one job market, especially if you're from a small job market. So going to Spain was, I think, an easy decision in that I, I missed the European element of you know, Italians call it la dolce vita or, or that just loving life uh, moment of, you know, having good food and restaurants and theaters and downtown and all this kind of stuff. And in the US, you know, most professors will have protein bars in their drawers and a big Coke fridge in the back because it's important to be caffeinated and energized so that you can not be distracted by the process of consuming food and actually just work. So I think coming back to Europe in that regard was wonderful. And my advisor, who I love to death, Dean Shepard, you know, told me, oh, you Europeans and your vacations, you know, because in the US, the, the little vacation that people have, they're using even less of it because there's this pressure of continuously being productive and at work, etc. So I think going back to Spain and Germany now also and honoring the importance of vacation and rest, which also research shows is important, has been has been wonderful. What else can I tell you? Going to Spain so was wonderful, but what I missed was that my fiancé, now husband, uh, was in Germany. So Germany was really an opportunity to bring my professional and personal life together. Little did I know that I would become a senior vice president. So I think the nine years in Germany were actually not really nine because for three years I was uh, SDP international. So that kept me flying a whole lot to our incredible partners around the globe and uh, I did an incredible sabbatical in Australia which was another fantastic couple of months. Comparing also this lifestyle of being super productive and then like mm -hmm. maybe valuing, valuing free time, how do you think about it now? Like is there like a better or worse or is there just like everyone has to find their place in the world or what do you think about it? So I think I've, I've generally regardless of countries I've gotten better in terms of time management And I'm realizing that, you know, for me personally, sometimes it's incredible to really disconnect for a while. Mm -hmm. But then after a while, I really get this itch of being too disconnected and I have a need to go back and get my mind busy. So, you know, depending on the country, for example, maternity leave. Yeah, I came back to work. I think originally I planned to come back after six months in the US. They were shocked. When I told my friends, they were like, six months, that's a luxury. Spain had a similar reaction because they also have a smaller time. In Germany, I was looked at as a bad mother. 
what do you mean you're cutting your work, your, your maternity leave to only six months? This doesn't make any sense. You have a year, take it. So I, I found I had to find my own way of doing it. And it's not easy because, you know, to be judged as a bad mother the first time you're becoming a mother is certainly not anything you wish for yourself. But I just found it that I was a happier mother if I would spend a couple of hours, you know, talking. So I was with my first pregnancy, I was walking around with Mila was, I think, three months. I was walking around with my PhD student around Munich English Garden, and we were discussing her research while the baby was sleeping, and I loved it. <laughs> Sounds very nice. All right, with that, I would go through the last block, which is called the toolbox, and we ask you five questions, and you can just give a quick answer on it. Ooh. And the first question here is, what is a book that everybody should read? You know what? I really thought about that question, and I was... <laughs> was struggling because I've read so many books and there's a book for every, you know, mindset, soul, etc. But what everybody, I think, could read, at least, is Little Prince. Aww. <laughs> you know, and maybe this is because now I'm a mom and whatever. But I think that book is so forward thinking in so many ways and yet so simple. And there's so many questions you can discuss, you know, why is he leaving the rose and taking care of it and why is it so hard and the eco side of his planet and <laughs> the, the important things can uh, not be seen with the eyes and there's there's so much wisdom in in that story that um, perhaps that's one i would pick it's a good one all right which is an app that everybody should download maybe i'm getting old you know i really don't like apps <laughs> So I try to keep phones away as much as I can and the addiction of phones as much as I can. After seeing that documentary on Netflix of social networks, I also deleted Facebook app from my phone. Having a Facebook app on my phone also dates me a little bit, I know. No, if any, then I would say Audible in terms of being able to listen books on the move. Yeah. If any, yeah. All right. Then what is a podcast you love listening to? Podcast I like listening to, in addition to all the entrepreneurship ones, which are just fun, so Masters of Scale or Tim Ferriss or whatever. I think Esther Perel has a really interesting one. She's a psychologist and psychotherapist, and she talks about relationships and how to find way through relationships, which I think, especially in COVID times, can be quite comforting and illuminating at the same time. Mm. We've heard this one uh, before, actually. Yeah, yeah okay. actually from, from Jakob, who asked the question to you. <laughs> You're kidding me. Well, yeah. cheers, cheers to Jakob. <laughs> we have something in common. That's nice. Um, okay, so is there a routine you follow? No? Terrible. So I, I don't have a routine. I have simple rules. And simple rules are whatever happens in the day, I want to have two hours of quality time with my kids. Is that a routine? I don't know. That's a good rule, at least. You know, so All simple right. rules like that. Yeah. Cool. All right. And the last one, which is an innovator that everybody should know? Hmm. So coming from Croatia, I would go for Tesla. But um, coming from entrepreneurship professor, I'd actually mention Tom Saki. I don't know if you know him. Tom Saki is the founder of TerraCycle, more lately also known for his Loop initiative. He's basically a Hungarian-born Canadian immigrant entrepreneur who has innovated so much on the business model side when it comes to sustainability and eco mission to rid the planet of trash that he's been innovating from technology to business models to partnership models and I just I found that really inspiring 
Wow. Check it out. And this is a topic that we couldn't even get into. But actually, you have now the opportunity to ask a question to our next guest, which is also like the very last thing we're going to ask you for. And okay. our next guest is going to be uh, Saskia, who is a co-founder of Your New Social Business. And there we're going to talk a lot about social entrepreneurship, hopefully. So yeah, Your New Social Business basically believes in the power of business to end poverty. Yeah. So what would you like to ask to her? What would I like to ask her? How do we educate investors to think more sustainably and socially? That's a very interesting question. I'm looking forward to the answer. I need to let me know. Hannah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. This yes, has been so, so insightful. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you both. I'm really, really excited. And thank you for the honor to, to have this chat. My greetings to the entire CDTM community. Cheers. Okay, Lisa, what do you think of Hannah? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a secret that I'm a big fan for sure. But what I actually really liked about talking to her was that I feel like many times with professors, especially if you're taught by them, then I feel like they're sometimes excited about their research, but not so much about teaching. And I feel like Hannah really is a professor through and through. It seems like she really loves her research and is super interested in the topic. But at the same time, she loves teaching and passing on this knowledge. And I felt like she was so knowledgeable and it was really hard for me to ask about her personal journey <laughs> because she had so many interesting insights that I also wanted to hear more about. So yeah, this was my general feeling. How about you? Uh, yeah, I think very cool to kind of talk to a professor who is so as you said, like not just researching, but also super excited about passing on this knowledge and helping the people around you to do something with that knowledge. And I think that's also mm -hmm. an approach that I kind of admire that she says, okay, I'm going to watch these individuals, these entrepreneurs from the outside and yeah. kind of learn about them. I mean, it kind of feels like being in a zoo and she's kind of looking uh, at them <laughs> from the outside. But yeah, but then she kind of tries to help them, right? And to kind of like, mm -hmm. gather some knowledge and these best practices that I think maybe each individual entrepreneur doesn't have the time or the capacity to even think about. Mm -hmm. And like taking this outside perspective yeah. yeah, can be very helpful, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's very cool that she yeah. does that. I also found her reasoning there super understandable because, I mean, she said... Yeah, I didn't want to go only into one topic, but I was interested in so many. And yeah, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. So thanks for tuning in once again. As always, you can reach us under podcast at cdtm.de in case you have any questions, comments, feedback. We are answering every email. And now we're looking forward to your next episode with Saskia Breusten, who is a co-founder and CEO of Unus Social Business. So she also has some really great insights into social entrepreneurship and impact in investing. Stay tuned for this one. Mostly Awesome is produced by CDTM and our production team includes Maria, who is doing the content, Keke, who is doing the cutting, Annalena doing the marketing and Frederick doing the vision of the podcast. As you can see, there's a lot of work going into this and we're grateful for everyone supporting us there. And if you like this episode and would like to support our work, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate it on the platform you're listening to. And also maybe tell your friends about it. It will help us to spread the word about the podcast and increase the listenership.
We also would like to know you, our listeners, better. So it would be great if you could give some feedback. Let us know what guests you would be interested in by going to cdtm.de slash podcast. And yeah, we're looking forward to your feedback and comments and see you in the next episode.